How does someone trained in a traditional gate-kept business, fine arts, get to thinking about an opportunity to create a platform where creativity lives, prosperity is shared, social and environmental conversations are inspired whilst utilizing a technology that will marry old traditions with new innovation? How and why did Jay Caldwell of Caldwell Gallery Hudson investigate a roadmap for the journey he is now traversing? What was the catalyst? What are the obstacles? Like any great idea, it came from living in an experience, seeing a need that has to be met, and finding a potential solution that will benefit the many instead of the few. Welcome. My name is Alicia Sternberg-Janos, and I'm the host of Let's Connect for Good. And as you've heard, Jay Caldwell is our guest. Thanks for joining our community, Jay. I'm glad to be here, Alicia. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So to start off, Jay, your family has been involved in the arts business for a really long time. But prior to your father becoming a gallerist and founding Caldwell Gallery, he ran another business that had nothing to do with fine art. Can you tell us about that? Well, Dad, uh, like many entrepreneurs, talks about failure as the greatest thing that ever happened to him. And after he got out of college, he joined a family business in the Syracuse area and did some innovations sideways from that business and ended up creating a company that made manufactured housing in the late 60s and into the early 70s. And that failed in 1973. And he was left with a wife, three young kids, and no real way to understand where he was going other than deciding the most important thing in his life was art and antiques. And he said, I'm going to hang my shingle out and follow that passion. And he did that for the next 44 years until he died in the saddle in 2017. That's amazing. Well, you you know, that seems to be the trend with entrepreneurs. They sort of have to fail. I have a friend that says he loves failures that happen hard and fast. So, <laughs> so it seems like your father kind of said, whoops, that's hard. I've got some kids and wow, what's the fast, what's the fast way that drives my passion? And, and he found it. Um, so obviously his story had a happy ending, but this change in career um, that brought opportunity um, also brought the opportunity for reconnecting, um, healing, and getting to know his his son in a new way and understanding some of the the challenges that you were facing at that time. Can you talk about that journey and how you ended up stepping in for your dad? Well, I followed in dad's footsteps uh, educationally. He had first gotten interested in antiques at Deerfield Academy, which is a town in western Massachusetts that is trapped in time. It hasn't changed much in the last 300 years. And the historic houses are filled with uh, original early American antiques. And, and that was what piqued his interest in antiques. He also went to Dartmouth College and I followed in both those footsteps. The thing I did a little differently was when I graduated from Dartmouth in 1985, unlike my classmates uh, who were heading off to law school, med school, uh, the Smith Barney Bond Trading Program, or the Peace Corps, I had graduated with a degree in economics and more or less a minor in alcohol and drugs. So when I was standing there at the end of college, I really didn't have a life plan and my life was a mess. I didn't really know it and couldn't admit it at that time. But I went back to Syracuse. Uh, my parents said, well, what are you going to do? 
We all knew there was a problem uh, with myself, but as many families do, they kind of stick their heads in the sand and they hope that that, you know, the horrible 800 pound gorilla in the room that is chemical dependency is something that will somehow magically go away on its own. But when my parents asked that question, I said, well, gee, dad kind of controls his own time, does what he loves, uh, does a lot of fly fishing to relax, and he seems to be pretty good at it. So I suggested to them as sort of a, almost to get them off my back, I said, well, why don't I start up with you guys uh, and give it a shot? And you could have pushed him over with a feather. They, I think, talked about it in their bedroom that night. And the next morning, dad said, okay, look, we'll give it six months. We will both be able to pull the plug if for whatever reason, without excuse needed. And we ended up working side by side for 34 years. And that was really a great pleasure. Uh, There was uh, the 800 pound gorilla didn't go away immediately. And we needed to get that squared away before I could really start to flourish as an art dealer and as a human being. Um, So there were rehabs and relapses and some very dark days. But as family does, uh, they're there when you need them in the toughest times. And and my parents were there and my friends and siblings helping me get to the point where I could finally admit there was something wrong and that I felt miserable enough to do something about it. So since December 21st, 1994, which is uh, 26 plus years, uh, alcohol and drugs have not been a part of my life. Jay, that's just, I mean, it's just a wonderful tale of a relationship between a family, their son, and and really, this isn't your typical son joining the father's business right out of the box, which I think is super interesting. You did, you did face a lot of challenges, and I think that's sort of at least what I know of you it has created the person that you are. I want to think about how this this new endeavor at uh, Caldwell Gallery Hudson came into being. Because I really do think there was a perfect storm that came into play. Now, the first piece of it happened pre-COVID, where you had a chance meeting. Maybe it was kismet. I, I believe that everything happens for a reason. And there's a person that had a big part in this. And then what are the other factors that may have led to this new endeavor? Well, I might start with just uh, letting the listeners know a little bit about our business, which is a secondary market gallery. So we, for 48 years, have bought and sold the work of deceased artists, generally speaking, from around 1850 to the year 2000 or so. So that's been our, the main uh, house, if you will, of our business has been that particular business model. Part of that business is going and attending a lot of art fairs and uh, seeing what other galleries are doing, going to museum shows, et cetera. And I was in New York heading to the Freeze Art Fair, which is on an island off the East River. And to get to the fair, you have to take a ferry boat up and then you have to take a ferry boat back down. And so I had gone up to Freeze. I enjoyed the uh, exhibition. It's a gigantic art fair and got on the ferry boat to head back to Manhattan and uh, sat down, beautiful day. And a woman sat kitty corner to me. Uh, We both didn't kind of know we were so close until we realized based on the angle and this post on the boat, our faces were like a yard apart. And uh, the woman turned and, you know, I smiled, she smiled, said, hello. She said, hello. I said, so did you enjoy the art fair? Uh, She said, yes. And uh, what do you do? I'm an art dealer. Uh, What do you do? I'm an artist. 
And that was how I met Nikolina Kovalenko. We got off the ferry boat. We were both heading off to the Armory Show across Manhattan. Uh, we shared a cab, had a cup of coffee, and uh, exchanged Instagrams, which is what people in the visual arts do. And we stayed in touch. And one day I saw an Instagram uh, post that she had done a painting. And I contacted her via direct message and said, tell me about that painting. How much is it? And I bought my first work by Nicolina. And a friendship had begun, which ended up inspiring me, uh, reading about the projects she was doing on behalf of the environment, some of them at a potential great danger to her, uh, such as her rainforest uh, illegal logging camp forays uh, that she went to alone as a woman to take tracings of uh, trees that had been cut down and fingerprints of the people working the camps uh, really inspired me and got me thinking about potentially the work of living artists and would we potentially uh, have an interest in doing something there. That's great. I mean, you, you truly, um, as the story unfolds, you truly are breaking a mold. Um, but I want to I want to get to this business, the now the business itself, um, since we've gotten through what led to it. Can you uh, speak first about the pillars of this enterprise, uh, specifically blockchain, NFT, and the metaverse, so we can understand what they are? Because we hear these things tossed around, and it would really be good for us to have them defined. Sure. So during COVID, uh, all of us were kind of alone in our spaces, huddling, and you know the world was under the cloud of a pandemic. And it got me thinking as I was, uh, you know, sort of alone in my house with art, how much art meant to me and how much comfort and solace it provided in, in a really, you know, stormy time for, for the planet. I also got thinking about Nika and the possibility of handling the work of a living artist. And if we did, how would we do that? And what I imagined ended up for me kind of metaphorically being building a new addition on our existing art house. And what would that addition look like? And what would the functionality be? And what would the purpose be? And so I started coming up with the idea of how we would represent uh, an artist and um, the various components. As I thought about that, I had also had an interest going back many years uh, regarding blockchain technologies and non-fungible tokens and uh, whatnot, and wanted to have that as a component of how we might represent an artist, but in a way that's a little bit new and a little bit different. So for the listeners out there, I'm going to give some quick definitions to three things they may have never heard of. So blockchain technology is best described as an immutable, decentralized, and distributed ledger that records the provenance of a digital asset. I realize that's a mouthful, but basically it's a way you can create a completely transparent, recordable, unalterable contract, if you will, that can allow everyone to feel comfort. In the regular world, we usually need lawyers and bankers and all kinds of people to do this, whether we're buying a car, a house, or entering into a contract of any sort. Blockchain technology allows two individuals or two parties to do this and not really need the middlemen. So it's a really uh, interesting and unique a new technology. And I think the world is going to be hearing a lot more about blockchain technology as we move forward. Non-fungible tokens, aka NFTs, <laughs> are unique units of digital data which represent real-world assets, which can include art and the underlying intellectual property. 
So that again is a mouthful, but basically NFTs are things that I believe will be ubiquitous in 10 and 20 years. Uh, you can use them to have tickets to get into events. Uh, you can use them. Uh, there's a uh, crypto casino right now that has NFTs involved. And the NFT art world has exploded with the uh, shot heard around the world, which was this past March when Beeple's $69 million NFT uh, shocked, shocked the world. Metaverses, the metaverse is two words put together, meta is known as beyond verse is the known universe. So we are talking beyond the known universe. And the best way to describe this, if anyone has seen their children playing a video game, they are in a version of a metaverse. And the metaverses that are available for businesses and individuals and people who might want to display their NFTs, among other things, uh, we've chosen one called Decentraland. And that's a big part of what we're doing when we are doing our um, representation of artists. Our first one will be Nikolina Kovalenko. And um, we will be employing all of these tools in addition to our brick and mortar pre-existing model that we've been had in place for 48 years. Okay, now I have a question for you because I had read recently that some artists have a problem with NFTs because of their environmental impact. I've also read that there are some solutions, but given Nicolina's um, background and mission, um, can you just give us some background that you have on um, in this area. Well, when I first spoke to Nicolina about getting involved in doing an exhibition of her work, it's something that came up. And at that time, the explosion of the NFT world was causing uh, the press to start to investigate and report on the cost of minting NFTs. And basically, you have two types of ways to validate blockchain transactions. The existing one, which is not environmentally friendly, is called proof of work. And that is something where most of the projects that are being dropped on uh, the blockchain are being done in the Ethereum network, and that is a proof of work network. For five years, they've said they would like to transition to the environmentally friendly proof of stake, but that is still something that they are working towards, but it has not happened. In the meantime, there are side blockchains that have been developed, such as Tezos, Polygon, and numerous others. They are proof of stake chains, and an environmental artist who is conscious about the impact on the planet of minting NFTs can use any one of these chains and look at themselves in the mirror in the morning and know that because of the proof of stake validation, they are not harming the environment. Thank you for that, because I think th that is a conversation that's happening. And I think it's a great data point for people to, to, to know about. And NFTs themselves, how do you, Jay, look at NFTs, meaning the fine art and the collectible NFTs? Can you explain the differences to us? Well, those seem to be the two main categories, if you will. The collectible NFTs are the sort of digital version of Beanie Babies. Um, and there's lots of projects <laughs> that are representing these from crypto punks to crypto kitties uh, and lots of really nifty things. A lot of artists are deploying some really, really cool stuff in this world. And uh, some of these NFT drops are 10,000 uh, versions, but they are computer altered 
based on a number of criterion. And when you mint the NFT, the computer spins a very complicated uh, algorithm and you get a very unique individual item amongst those 10,000. So it's a little bit like a cool lottery of what will you get when you mint this? You don't know until you press the button and buy it. So these generational projects are really, really interesting and they're just exploding. People love them. I bought a few of them. Some of them have environmental and social angles on their roadmap where when these things are sold, deserving nonprofits get funds as a result. And those are the kind of the collectible side of NFTs. Those are the types of projects that really interest me. And I've been buying some of those and they're really interesting. Um, I came to the world of NFTs from a fine art angle. And I first learned of a company that was doing a lot of curatorial going way back to 2017, 2018. And they were have some principles that are Russian based and they're now in Brooklyn, but it's called Snark Art. And I saw some of the, inf I got on their mailing list somehow back, I think in 2018, and started looking at their website and some of these projects where they were taking existing curatorially sound, notable living artists, and they were challenging them and inviting them to create digital works and NFTs. And I started collecting some of those projects. And the, the part deep down for me that's most interesting related to NFTs would be where fine artists are taking these new tools, bringing them into their studios where they've been previously creating with oils and canvas and digital and augmented reality. And they're now able to add uh, these tools to their toolbox and deploy their art in new ways. And art is about messaging for human beings going back to the first cave paintings. And it connects us. It helps us understand this crazy mixed up world we live in and life itself. So these types of projects are the ones that really intrigue me and that I've been focused on personally as a collector and that we want to help uh, continue with the artists that we will represent in the projects we're doing. That is this whole idea that there is this starving artist and what opportunities are ahead for them, right? And I think that's, that's, a, that's, one of the things that you have been focused on with this with this new initiative, and I think you, even though you're saying living artists now, I think you've always been a support system to to artists that are out there. So now I want to get to this whole idea of NFTs and how people are responding to them, because there was no representation of NFTs at the Armory show. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, your visit to the Armory this year? Well, the Armory show was in New York. It was my first art fair in almost two years. Uh, all of us are starved to get back into the uh, the trenches of art fairs and mingle. Mingling means a new thing with masks and vaccination yeah. cards and all of those things. But I went uh, to New York. Hudson is about two hours north of New York City and met with a friend of mine. Her name is Nikolina Kovalenko, who came in from Brooklyn. And we walked the fair, uh, the Armory Art Fair at the Javits Center. And it was pretty amazing. It's a great place for an art fair. It was the first year they held it there. But I went in the door thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what contemporary galleries that are on the cutting edge will have the art on the walls, but also, you know, an NFT experience uh, somewhere in their booth. And I found absolutely zero NFT experiences. So 
that was a little surprising. But it also tells me that what we're doing is something that I feel will be able to maybe showcase possibilities. And these artists, maybe next year or the year after, will start to see more kind of a blend and a synthesis between you know, the regular oil and canvas and bronze and whatnot world and the world of uh, digital art uh, as represented in NFTs. Well, there was an article, too, that came out, and I think you know which one I'm, I'm pointing to, where this statement was made. Thus far, it looks to me more like a commercial enterprise than an artistic one. I'm not really sure what the innovative artistic idea is. It's too soon to say what NFTs mean to the art world. And our job is not to speculate. Our job, in some ways, to canonize. So I, I thought that was an interesting um, commentary. How do you respond to that, Jay? Well, this unnamed and powerful museum director and CEO has uh, his opinion. If I circle back to the uh, fine artists of our day doing innovative projects, I would bring up just an exhibit A to potentially have a little bit of a contrast to what he was suggesting. There was a NFT drop a few months back by an artist named Nancy Baker Cahill. She is a very notable artist working on augmented reality uh, digital works. And this was her first NFT drop. She's done TED Talks. She's a globally known speaker. This is a particular artist who has all of the correct uh, validations that you would think curatorially where she's exhibited and her place in the art world. Uh, she's a rock star. And she dropped an NFT group called Contract Killers that was very innovative. They used the SNARK platform as a sort of a curatorial stepping stone. Tezos, the proof of stake chain, was used for environmentally friendly approach. In addition to the regular blockchain contract of NFTs, uh, Nancy uh, got involved with a uh, intellectual property lawyer in Los Angeles named Sarah Conley Odenkirk, and they created a separate contract on top of the NFT contract that buyers of the drop would sign, and that would activate a special additional covenant between the collector and owner of the NFT and the artist. And the unbelievably innovative uh, approach there. So everyone knows where they stand. One of the beauties of NFTs is artists can get built-in resale royalties that are part of a contract. So if I sell an NFT, um, the artist would automatically have the resale royalty triggered into their uh, wallet. And um, that's a very, very uh, innovative approach that's been something the art world has been struggling with and trying to solve uh, going back 100 years. Uh, France has that built in as a nation into resales of work by living artists and their heirs. It's called Droit en Suite. And in um, the blockchain NFT world, you can build that into the contract itself. One other thing interesting about contract killers is it talked about um, the contracts us humans have been engaged in for a long time, how those contracts get broken and how the NFT space might help us create new ways to have um, accountability and everyone able to comfortably feel like they're involved in something that won't be uh, broken. One other interesting thing was the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston was involved in this project as part of a COVID 
shutdown, we are going to get involved in very interesting things when the museum doors can't be open. And they were a partner in this project. So when it dropped, I said, hey, I'm going to get involved. I ended up buying all three of the one of one NFTs and one of the multiple NFTs that about 23 were sold. So I kind of went in and bought the whole kit and caboodle, but I believed in it. And I think someday I hope that'll end up in a museum somewhere. And it's already been exhibited in a museum in Austria, which decided to put together the first ever museum uh, exhibition of uh, digital and NFT art. And it's called Proof of Art. And it was at the State Museum in Austria, known as the Linz. I have another uh, museum, so sort of as a proof of worth, if you will, or um, that this is going to continue on as um, something that people are, are watching closely, the Hermitage in Russia. They actually have uh, minted some Leonardo da Vinci NFTs and are actually on November 10th having a show. So they, you know, just like any new art, if you will, even though I guess some of the, some of the initials of this form of art um, were back to the 1960s. Did you know that? I did not. But this particular morphing of that is, is obviously much more recent. But having say, said that, the director at the Hermitage is really excited about NFTs. So I thought that might be an interesting sort of validation point to bring up in addition to what you brought up so far. And I think something that um, is super important as it gets to connecting for good, the project itself is designed with a cause for good component, which end-to-end marries commerce, charity, access, education, and opportunities for the establishment to participate in ways that will change their perspective for the better. Um, And this isn't all about transaction. This is really about everyone working together to move us all forward. Uh, Can you talk about some of the components of that, Jay? This fall, we are opening an exhibition of the work of Nikolina Kovalenko. And she became interested in coral and the plight of corals in our world's oceans a few years ago. And as a result of that, she learned to dive and the very difficult task of underwater photography. And her inspiration, as always with her, was what can I do, even if it's just a little bit, to help with this very important environmental issue. I learned a few things about corals that I had not known, which was they are animals. I also learned they are incredibly important to all life on Earth, not just below the surface of the ocean, but uh, here above the surface of the ocean where we live. And uh, they are in a real state of crisis. So Nika has, as a result of her expeditions uh, to coral reefs to study and see their beauty and also see the devastation they are undergoing with coral bleaching and how they're dying out, Um, She has created paintings based on the photographic inspirations that she has created with her photography, uh, works that she calls her utopian reefscapes. And they aren't replications of photographs, but rather her imagined experience trying to bring joy and hope uh, with these paintings. And they're incredibly beautiful. So in the addition of our house, we'll be hanging paintings by her uh, of these utopian reefscapes. And in deploying the technology we've talked about before, 
uh, we will be having a NFT reflection of every work on the wall that Nika has created that will be available in our gallery on Decentraland in the metaverse and in our blockchain store. And we will also have an artist residency where Nika will paint an artwork in the front window of our gallery over the course of nine days. And that will be raffled uh, with 100% of the proceeds going to a charity which we've connected into, which is called the Coral Reef Alliance. And they're one of the most important charities worldwide for coral restoration uh, and prevention of the factors that are causing the coral reefs themselves to die out. The philanthropy that's connected into the show is we are disrupting uh, the art world in terms of the usual 50-50 artist gallery commission structure. Uh, we will be providing 20% of all of the sales revenues for the exhibition, as well as 100% of the raffle painting sales will go to the Coral Reef Alliance. And I felt that with our involvement in the work of living artists, that this new edition of our house would be one where we would have two exhibitions a year, one in the fall for an environmental artist and one in the spring for a social issues artist. And both of those would provide philanthropy for helping in whatever small way we can, very important issues in our times. So I'm very excited about it. And we can't wait to open the show. Nika and I are working very hard, me on the gallery side and her on the painting side. I'm hoping all of the paintings will be dry when we hang them on the wall for the opening. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm going to make my way over there and do a walkthrough with you. Maybe it's on social media or something because and we'll put up um, her paintings so that people can see them. I actually have met Nicolina. And so I know the special person she is. In addition, I'm coveting her paintings. Now, maybe I'm just going to end up getting an NFT, but we'll see about that. Um, There's another piece I'd like you to talk about, the Disruptors Ball. Well, that was something that I hatched when I thought about having the two exhibitions a year. I said, you know, December rolls around and I started thinking about, you know, offices would have their office parties and the art world has Art Basel down in Miami Beach. And it's, you know, I thought, well, gee, we're kind of here where we don't know if we're going to be able to gather and connect. But what about having a little gathering in our Decentraland gallery building, which, by the way, uh, we own land in Decentraland, but the building is something that you have to either create if you have the technology or have someone do that for you. And we researched that very complicated project and we have a architect building us our building, our custom gallery project space building into central land. And I met this very accomplished and creative designer and metaverse architect. And uh, we are in a business relationship together. The building is being built. And uh, this architect happens to be a 16 year old kid in the 11th grade out in California. And so the brave new world of blockchain and metaverse and NFT, you can be a accomplished architect and be heading off to school on a, on a yellow school bus on Monday through Friday, like uh, Evan is. <laughs> so, but exciting stuff. And, and so I thought about our space that we'll have and have a end of year ball where the two artists we represent, the environmental and the social, can invite friends and I can find others and we can challenge, say, maybe a dozen artists to create one NFT for this ball. When it gets sold, uh, 50% will go to the artist, 
50% will go to the artist charity of choice. 0% will go to Caldwell Gallery Hudson, and we'll all be able to feel good and have a little fun. I mean, that's just great. It's sort of end-to-end, uh, really disrupting, not to say the word stodgy, but could be thought of as stodgy world. Uh, and you're you're bringing everyone in. And, and, and I do think in terms of it's there's something for everyone. It gives the artists themselves a way to give back because it's expensive. All this philanthropy is is not accessible for everyone. So it, that piece, I think, is terrific, too. So now I'm just going to bridge in. Obviously, everyone now knows that Jay is clearly a bridge between history connection, collaboration, and for sure, good. So... You have heard his creative voice, and in the spirit of connecting for good, I've identified a potential collaboration for Jay with an advocacy group that is pushing for reforms in access through technology and education in a field that historically has been plagued by lack of inclusion. So I'm so excited to make the introduction on a future episode of Let's Connect for Good. Can you think of any ways you can get involved with Jay's mission? I'm sure he'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have any ideas we might want to highlight on Let's Connect for Good? As community members, we want to hear from you. Let us know any feed forwards you have. Uh, this is why we're here. I mean, this is the most important reason. So why don't you reach out and, and let us know at uh, letsconnectforgood.com. There, of course, will be all the things that make it great, like links to Jay's uh, website and we will have some of the art that he's just been talking about so let's get this conversation started and we will of course i put a nod to it before be interacting with jay on social media and just follow our stories that's part of this whole thing you know watching something get created and following it through to the end and having you be part of it so hopefully let's see all the outcomes and jay do you have any parting comments for us well thank you for having me And I look forward to what kind of connection you'll be presenting next time, Alicia. All right. So thank you for being part of our community. And everyone have a fantastic day. Thanks. Bye. Bye.